Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. Sorry if I haven't given many intros lately for podcast episodes. I've been kind of lazy, but I'm not too lazy to mention the sponsors of this podcast, with the first one being Fountain. It's a podcasting app that allows you to earn Bitcoin while you listen to podcasts, and that's as simple as I can make it, because you know what? I think the idea of earning money while you listen to your favorite creatives is an opportunity you won't want, wouldn't want to turn down, and frankly... In addition to being able to support them financially as opposed to the Patreon model, you're able to earn money for the time you've given them, which is a great thing when it comes to podcasting, because in addition to being a, po- a productivity hack, the fact that you're getting money for giving your time to people you already admire is something that is just hard to resist. And I'm sure plenty of creatives listening to this podcast find it difficult to resist the urge to be creative in their own light, and that's where Anchor comes in, because when it comes to Anchor, it's a podcasting app that'll, oh, more of a platform that'll, well, it is an app. God, I'm really fucked up today, but you know what? Fuck it. I haven't given an intro, and I might as well just be free and spirited and whatever you want to call it. But anyway, going back to Anchor, the second sponsor of this podcast. If you're looking to create your own podcast and get your voice out there, Anchor simplifies that because you're able to distribute your podcast across multiple platforms. That's right. Instead of having to record yourself and publish it on each individual platform out there, <coughs> sorry, instead of having to record yourself and then publish it on each individual platform, Anchor pretty much distributes it across all of them within a matter of seconds. Well, that's right, whether it's Apple, Lisbon, Spotify, CurioCaster, PodFreeze, Fountain, the whole shebang, which is a word I never got tired of using. Anyway, I want to talk about my guest today, Joe Nolan. No relation to the, to Chris or Jonathan Nolan, but he's just as interesting. He's an intermediate artist whose diverse practice includes fine art photography, multimedia paintings, and he's even the creator of what's known as the Pikes Project, which is a multimedia creative practice focused on the communities that connect... <coughs> Sorry, I reread that wrong. Yes, I'm actually reading this from a LinkedIn, from his LinkedIn profile because I really respect him enough that I want to admire the credibility he represents with the work he's done. But anyway, Joe has created something called the Pikes Project, which is, again, a multimedia creative practice focused on Nashville's historic Pike roadways and the communities that connect. And if you want to know more about Joe, he's also the author of a book called Nowville, The Secret History of Nashville, Tennessee's Contemporary Art Renaissance. And... You can even support Joe by clicking on his Patreon, Mighty Joe Nolan, if, you, if you're interested. I talked to Joe, in my discussion with Joe, we mostly talked about film, music, art, politics, which is always fun, especially when you're talking with a sane person that recognizes that regardless of whether you're right or left, it's all a fucking shit show that just makes you think, why not just take the George Carlin approach? Right. Sadly, that's something we didn't talk about. We did talk about comedy, but we didn't talk about Joe, uh, George Carlin, which is a shame because I'm sure he was a fan. But still, the politics makes up for it in some sense, as well as the more artistic endeavors we talked about. And I even shared him with my idea of a short film I wrote about Roger Waters, which I actually talked about with a previous guest on this podcast. You should talk, check out the episode before this one. Anyway... I've already fudged up enough of this intro and uh, not really given a shit as to how to go with it. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Check out the crypto, no, the Bitcoin buying links I've left down below. 
granted one of them it does allow you to buy shit coins and that would be coinbase but that's at your own leisure i hope you'll enjoy it click on them get the referral rewards and uh just enjoy the show joe i really want to appreciate the time you're giving me for doing this interview and uh I mean, I was very interested in your background, particularly in art. And uh, why don't you just tell me more about your art, your art background, and how that's helped you in film? Uh, yeah. So, um, my, I actually, if I can just start from the very beginning, like when I was when I was a little kid, I used to draw all the time, and like lots of little kids do, you know. Uh, but like me and and uh, and uh, some other you know kids I grew up with we were always like the ones who, you know, if there was like some kind of special contest or some kind of thing that was going to be done, like we would be the ones who would like jump in and like do the art part of it. You know what I mean? So, so it's always been something I did. And um, I got into music too, when I was a young kid. And then uh, uh, when I moved to Nashville in the nineties, I actually moved to Nashville because of my songwriting. That's, you know, I came here because of music, like so many people do. Um, and uh, uh at that time, there was, I, I met a bunch of artists and I hadn't really hung out with like real artists, like really ever. I didn't really ever have friends who were serious artists. I, I had a good buddy of mine who was an architect and things like that, but I didn't really know any like serious artists when I was growing up really outside of musicians, you know? Um, and so I started hanging out with these painters and uh, there was like four people I knew and they all lived in the same, uh, they shared a house together. And uh, and they just basically use that house, just different parts of that house is just like, you know, they just put down a drop cloth in the kitchen and paint a big painting in the kitchen or or in the hallway or whatever, you know. And uh, and I would watch these these, uh, you know, these I'd pop by, you know, every couple of weeks or something. And I would see, oh, that's that thing you started last week and now it's done. And I'd be like so fascinated by how they were making it and all these different techniques they were using. And when I started getting in with those people, I started getting into like a whole part of Nashville that was really trying to, to grow a contemporary art scene for Nashville. And that got me more into visual art again. And at that time, we were doing things like showing artwork at, uh, you know, coffee houses or just organizing spaces where we could, you know, take over a, a cheap, you know, building or something for an evening and do an art show or whatever. And those friends of mine I was talking about who did the painting they started a thing called the uh, yard sale where they would basically do a yard sale, but instead of selling, you know, old clothes or whatever. Oh, random would, stuff. Yeah, yeah, they would just all take all these paintings out of their house and put them out on the yard and it would be like, you know, 25 bucks for a painting kind of thing, you know? And, uh, and we kind of grew that and like went from where they were living to like a better location where another friend of mine was and got more artists involved in that and, uh, and actually started advertising it like as a yard sale, but specifically telling people it was for art and stuff. And it was really quite successful uh, for a while. And then it got to be sort of a chore and then nobody wanted to do it anymore, but it was a fun adventure. And that led me into working for, uh, for uh, a number of years, for about 15 years, pretty regularly, I worked in galleries and museums uh, installing art shows, right? So I'd be like one of the people unloading the trucks and putting the stuff on the walls and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was weird because when I did, when I started doing that work, it sort of, uh, my, my own art kind of took a back seat and became like, if I needed a poster for a music show or something like that, I would make my own. Or if I needed, 
some artwork for a new music release. Like, oh, I've got a new CD. At that time, we were making CDs, you know. So I'd, uh, I would make my own CD cover and all that kind of stuff. So the art sort of became a secondary thing to my music. Uh, but then, I, you know, I around uh, 20... 15-ish, I started sort of slowing down on working in galleries and things like that. And uh, little by little, like I started doing more and more visual stuff. And then uh, during the pandemic, right before the pandemic started, my wife and I uh, bought a house. And once we got in, we were in a tiny apartment just trying to save money to, to look for a house. And uh, by the time we ended up in this new space um, and, and the pandemic started happening, so things were just kind of slowing down in general. And I, you know, there was nowhere to go that was like distracting you from your time or whatever. I sort of got back into painting again. So I've been, I've been doing more painting and I did a photography project for the last six years. Uh, that's like a street photography project. Mm -hmm. I've got an Instagram account called the Pikes Project. In Nashville, there's all these historic roads that are called Pikes, right? There's mm -hmm. Hillsborough Pike, Gallatin Pike, this kind of thing. They used to be private roads where, you know, somebody, a rich person would, would take over some horse trail and they would make it into a decent road and then they would be able to charge people to travel on it right this is how this is how roads got developed right so back then they were they were you know nowadays we think about those pay roads as turnpikes and this is a similar thing it's now like the origin story to the toll booth yeah exactly that's exactly right and uh, um this is uh the in nashville the pikes are just uh these various streets all around these neighborhoods all around Nashville that are kind of specifically areas where people like live and work and where like tourists are never, tourists never go there. You know what I mean? So the idea of doing a street photography project in, uh, uh, you know, focusing on those pikes was a way of sort of trying to present like an alternative visual language, you know, compared to what most people like in the, because Nashville projects this thing into the world that's all, you know, guitars and rhinestones and cowboy hats and glitter and, you know, whatever. <laughs> you spotlight. It's like the Vegas version of Texas. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's very much, you know, and Southern hospitality and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's, Nashville's very big in tourism and they're they're known, of course, around the world for their music. Um, and that's that's all fine, by the way. I mean, I, I don't have any problem with any of that. But the, the idea with the Pikes Project was that it's a different place if you live here and and like you and I were talking before you started recording, you know, Nashville's a place that's experiencing all of the growing pains of, of boom towns like all over the country. And so uh, um, so doing a, uh, uh, you know, a, a photo project that focused on the sort of the uh, overlooked beauty of these everyday spaces was was something that it interested me and it sort of caught on and uh, people paid attention and I've been able to luckily I've been able to do quite a few exhibits and things and there's some they, they just built a new soccer stadium in Nashville and there's a gallery in there and I was lucky enough to get three of my photographs in the first show that they've done there so that's been up all season and luckily they're heading into the playoffs so that's going to be up for a little while longer. <laughs> After this interview, if you want to share some of the, that photography with me, I'd really, I'd really like to see it because okay. I'm not, I mean, I take pictures from time to time with my iPhone camera and I, I mean, I wouldn't call, I mean, I would love to share the art I do, but it's more like di digital art that I use on this computer where I, and it's like all based on fu those Funkos and it's gimmicky, but I distort the colors, uh, fun. It's, but it's just for a fun gimmick because I'm mostly just a writer, but when it comes to 
when it comes to uh, the photography, I think you'd really appreciate also Byways, the book that Roger Deakins recently released. Oh, wow. I would love to. I don't know anything about that. No, did you know that he actually took uh, had a lot of experience in photography in addition to his background in cinematography? I'm aware of that, yeah, but I haven't really seen a ton of his photos. Oh, yeah, they're all in a, it's all, the book is is out now, and about a year ago, I was rather sad that he would take a break from his podcast, because I'm a big fan of the Deacons, the Team Deacons podcast, but that was around the time that he was going on hiatus to publish the book, I think, and uh, I think someone like you who's more experienced in photography than I am would definitely appreciate it, but when it comes to your music, what kind of music do you work on? Uh, my music is, uh, you know, I just call it here. I, I usually just tell people like it's singer songwriter music because like literally that's what it is. It's, you know, I write songs to perform live and to record. Um, uh, but like I always compare it. Usually I compare it to uh, Neil Young. I don't even sound like Neil Young or anything like that. Like my I don't sing that high. you know what I mean? But I compare it to him because like when you listen to Neil Young, it could be just him on his guitar, like breaking your heart with this pretty ballad. Or right. it could be him with Crazy Horse just tearing down the house, just the noisiest, skankiest rock music you've ever heard. So I, I tried. I, I have a lot of that variety in what I do. And I sort of rely on my voice and my lyrics, which are always like a big focus in my music. I sort of just sort of let that be the signature. And then I give myself the room to just sort of do whatever kind of style I feel. Mm, are you a fan of Roger Waters? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Actually it's funny that, Wild. And his music it's funny that you mentioned him because uh, I was just in a, in a recording studio with my buddy. We're trying to finish an album right now. And while we were up there, there was something, there was a line in a song that he sang the backgrounds to. And there was the last word of it was, uh, I can't remember what, what the word this was. Is not a drill? Is that the one? Uh, is this the what? one? This is not a drill, the recent one he did? No, 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 it's not that. It's 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 an older uh, Pink Floyd song. But no, it's not a Pink Floyd song. Hold on, I'll, I'll tell you what it, what it came from. But so, so the way he sang this one last part of this lyric where he sang this particular word, I like laugh because it was really cool, it was, but it was very kind of a weird harmony to do there. And I, I, I thought it was an interesting choice. And then he admitted that he basically was singing it exactly the way that Roger Waters sang this line from his album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, which is like a solo album of his. And we were, and I, then he told me that, and I forgot about that album when he told me the title, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. I started laughing my ass off because it's such a funny title. But yeah, I love Roger Waters. He's incredibly funny and incredibly smart and his music's amazing. His voice well, is great. He was the inspiration for a short film script I wrote. I mean, it's not a film, but it's a short film script I published on my Substack, And it's like fantasy oriented, totally, it's completely absurdist because and it was all inspired by a comment he made when he was being interviewed by an independent journalist named Katie Helper about his. Oh, I know her. Yeah, about his childhood and how he never took shit from the nuns or something like that. And I thought, <laughs> why not? I mean, I won't tell you the plot, but the 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 story, the title is Roger Waters versus the Nuns. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. And yeah. it just mind bends a lot of weird stuff that would never happen in real life. I mean, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe martial, maybe uh, Roger Waters is you know, like does train in martial arts because you'll be surprised <laughs> a lot of people that you don't know who are mildly famous are martial arts fans or trained to some extent. Uh huh. 
I mean, I, I don't know if you listen to Joe Rogan, but you'll be surprised that Robert Kelly, the comedian, is trained in martial arts. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm a martial artist fan myself. I've actually I actually have some injuries that have kept me from doing much training recently. But uh, when I was growing up, I did Taekwondo. And then when I was in college, I did a bit of boxing, not nothing competitive, but I like was working out this amateur boxing club and and learning the basics, basically, you know, and doing a little bit of sparring or something. And then uh, most recently, I was doing more uh, like really MMA, I guess you would say. I was basically going like doing like gi, jujitsu one night. No yeah, they, they talk about those specifically. Yeah. And then doing uh, and then doing kickboxing stuff like on Fridays or something. But it's and it's actually it's funny. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I used to have a podcast myself. I've done a few of them over the years. But the last one I did my buddy Brian Siskin and I did a podcast called Art Fight Podcast. And it was specifically like mixing together, like talking to filmmakers, talking to musicians, talking to painters, talking to actors, but then also talking to coaches and referees and fighters and um, MMA media people and stuff. And it was just, it ended up being this cool way where we could just have these discussions about like creativity with all these people and sort of demonstrate how you know, uh, whatever, how somebody like Sean O'Malley is just as creative as somebody like Miles Davis. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but you know. Georges, you could say the same about George St. Pierre because I'm, I don't watch UFC. I just, I mean, I'm more fascinated by the fighter themselves as a human mm -hmm. being. I've seen, I watch interviews of them and I find them just fascinating both as archetypes or individuals. And I, I mean, I find John, I mean, I'm reserving this interview that I'm, well, I'm reserving watching, listening to this interview of Lex Friedman interviewing John Donner because it is a very long interview, but he is, uh -huh. I've seen his interviews before and he's just a, a fascinating man because the fact that he used to teach philosophy in Columbia University and then he just dedicated his life to martial, martial arts is incredible and fascinating. And uh, I think there's something underrated because even though I'm not trained in martial arts, I'm more like self-taught. I just do whatever mm -hmm. random moves i can watch on youtube a mix yeah. of both i mean my introduction to martial arts just with a fascination overall was bruce lee and the idea of jeet kundo 100 and uh, i guess before we start talking about film answer me this do you think that uh when joe rogan says that he thinks how he and he asks uh how bruce lee would fare in mma today how do you feel about that because that's a to that was a totally different time as opposed to now yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I would think that it may be probably in some ways it would be, you know, extra hard now because now we've gotten to the point where the whole idea of what MMA could be has has it's really become a couple of very effective versions of itself at this point, you know, and, and we're kind of seeing a changing of the guard in the fact that now you have these younger guys who are coming up and they're starting to eat up, you know, the Conor McGregor era basically, you know, is now like slow and, and lame compared to what they're doing now. Um, with Bruce Lee, I don't know. It's interesting, but I do think that Jeet Kune Do is it, Jeet Kune Do and also Bruce Lee's whole story as a martial artist in terms of the, the whole development of his idea and sort of him like sort of bucking traditions, you know, that, that you know, sort of said, well, this thing is this thing and it needs to be only this or this is this and that can only do this or there's only certain people you can teach and things like this, all these rules and regulations oh, and boy. really his willingness to just say, I don't want to obey any of these rules and I think these rules are stupid and I think there's a better way to do this and just the fact that he was really seeking to say, well, ask the questions that you're asking, well, who does the karate man be? Today. 
does the Kung Fu guy beat the Judo guy, you know? And, and to me, that's the most important thing about mixed martial arts is that it's, 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 it's asking those questions over time. And this thing is getting more and more refined into like the ultimate kind of system of human fighting, which is fascinating. But Bruce Lee, I don't know. I don't think he would, I think he, I think, you know, what, what weight class would he be in? Would he be like a bantamweight? Like 135 probably? <laughs> I don't know because I don't even know what his height was, but I think for me, I'm more skeptical about the whole showmanship aspect of it because he doesn't seem like he would just fit into that. Sh into I mean, I know he was an actor, but I think he would find some absurdity with the in with the overly glorified showmanship of it. Because I mean, you don't. I mean, you don't really believe Conor McGregor when he says that he's going to kill Khabib's entire family. No, right, right, right. I mean, I like Conor McGregor. I think he's a fascinating person, but I know it's definitely a show, and he threatens to kill a guy's family. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Of course. And yeah. I Think yeah, it, would 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 just like I mean I'm I'm sure he could call it out as bullshit, but just the idea of it just seems so pornographic. Yeah, and sort of I mean he seemed like uh, such a more intense like artist and philosopher. Like, you're probably right. He probably wouldn't have time for like it's kind of a circus, really. <laughs> um, for me, I just spend most. I mean, my with my free time, I either read. I mean, I wish I could play more video games, but I just spend most of the time just reading whatever can intellectually stimulate me. Mm -hmm. well, take into account Bruce Lee's idea. It really is the they question. And I guess this comes from something Tarantino said, like when uh, he was on Rogan's podcast, he asked, he told him, I don't think you could ever make a movie like some movies they were talking about. And he's like, who's they? And the who's they question to me, I can think you can delegate it to any art form, really. And in the in case in my field of work, writing or even screenwriting, I'm curious to know, what do you think about the idea of, of screenwriting gurus overall? I mean, I think some are much smarter and wiser than others, but I think when they become objective in their methods, that's when I think a lot of screenwriters become very mechanized in the way they approach stories that I'm amazed that they're able to crank out scripts within a matter of weeks or months, unless they've been working on them for years. Cause I mean, nobody knew, I mean, people will be surprised that Christopher Nolan took 20 years to write Tet, something like Tenet. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I understand what you're asking. And I, I, I feel, I feel like I struggle the same way. I haven't written a bunch of screenplays, but to the degree that I've attempted to, and to the degree that I've written a few stage plays, I, um, I, f I find like within drama, right. The, the story structure becomes, it's, it's so important, really. You know what I mean? I mean, you can you can bucket, you know, but I feel like there's room for exper experimental literature almost more than there is room for experimental film. I mean, I'm kind of mostly right now anyway, I'm, I'm in the world of experimental film, but I also know that it's a, you know, commercial dead end. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's not many opportunities for that, you know? And I feel like, um, uh, so there, and, and what is experimental film? Generally, we're talking about movies that veer away from traditional story structure and from narrative storytelling. And if you're going to go into that, then that all that structure and everything becomes such a huge part of it. It's like, you know, the, the whole, it's just, it's the, it's the frame, you know? And so on some level, you've got to become like a master of how to do that. But at the same time, you've got to somehow... You want to violate some aspects of it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because it's I find it to be kind of daunting to sort of try to come to grips with that. And at the same time, 
let myself tell what I think is an interesting story and let it go where it wants to go. Kind of like, you know what I mean? I just, I, I feel like I, I don't really, I don't know, man. It's like, I don't really like storytelling that much, you know? So, so it's sort of like, I want it to just be like an experience more than a story. You know, like I, I like, like I was just watching uh Jim Jarmusch, uh, his, his, uh, his horror movie, the dead don't die, you know? And like, that's a movie where, I mean, maybe if I broke down the script, I would find that, yes, this hits all the points. Here's the first act, the second act, the third act. But, but generally with Jim Jarmusch, I mean, he sort of makes movies where nothing happens kind of like, like he made an, he made an action movie called control. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but basically it's an action movie without any action scenes. Like he skips all the action scenes and just lets it be the quiet times between the action right? of this, like he direct a, Patterson with, uh, with, uh, Adam Drive. Yeah. 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 Okay. He did Patterson too. I wanted yeah. to be here because. I've certainly seen that film of his, but I don't know if I've seen if he directed this other film called Lost in Paradise. Is that yeah? He, he did. Okay, he did direct that as well. I saw that as well, and nothing much happens. But there's so something fascinating about it because there's like a documentary like aspect to Lost in Paradise, mm -hmm. and you could say the same about Patterson, but Patterson feels more modern. Yeah, for sure. Because of the the when it's taking place, but it is really just about the regular day struggles of an average human being. And I still enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Now, do I think my opinion on screenwriting gurus, there are some I definitely like more than others that are less intellectually arrogant. Uh -huh. I, mean, I mean, I don't, I've never seen the guy who wrote Save the Cat, but I fundamentally despise that book because, I mean, I, I find some bits of it enjoyable in the beginning, but then once you get to the part where the guy is basically arguing as to why it's smarter to write a miscongeniality as opposed to memento, mm -hmm. and Yes, Miscongeniality is a film that'll make more money than an independent film like Memento. But if you're making a case for that, for what's more marketable, what, rather than something that's more creative as a story in a book about storytelling, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but then you're not writing a screenwriting book. You're writing a book about, about modern market economics. Yeah, uh, yeah, well said. But I think, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I hope I, uh, I, hope I didn't sound too pseudo intellectual there, but. <laughs> no, not at all, no. And, John and I think I think that's part of it too is that like you know some people some people are looking for a way to be you know to be, make a million dollars making a film you know what I mean and that, yeah, but that the market's always changing I mean yeah that's true too let's take like uh let's put it in a, one example I gave I told my mother a few weeks ago when I saw rewatched the Valley V law and she was surprised that they're not making movies like that anymore and it's not even that much. I mean, maybe it's an independent film by some standards, but it is re regular by its modern narrative. And yet, even that, it would be a surprise to see a film like that today versus the superhero phenomenon and the tentpole event films. Right. That's an example of how the market's changing and it's going to keep on changing no matter what. I don't know what it's going to I mean. It's definitely giving filmmakers a more independent approach to how they get their projects made, much more decentralized. Hell, I published my short film script because I've never made it. I've never made a film, but I published it on my Substack because you know what? One thing I hate also about the screenwriting industry is those websites where you have to pay to have your script posted there in the event that oh. you might see it. And I've spoken with filmmakers and they tell me the same thing. No agent is looking in those websites. So at least right. it's like you're paying to be told to go fuck yourself. At least with <laughs> Substack, you're at least you're at least being ignored for free.
<laughs> yeah, you well own the content. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, man. And I, I think, and and I think that's like, you know, my take on a lot of this stuff is really, you know, knowledge that I've learned about, um, about centralized bureaucracies. <laughs> yeah, that too. But also about, um, like, uh, just just the, the the way that independent music has evolved, and and a lot of the same stuff applies to music or writing or anything else. Cause it's like, like you say, the key is like, you want to retain your ownership. You want to do it yourself. You know what I mean? And it's, it's ultimately going to be to your benefit to, to do that. But in order to do that, it takes a tremendous amount of, you know, uh, 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 what do you call it? Like sweat equity and elbow grease on your part. But I was just, I was just actually reading about a band called twin that's uh, they're pretty good. I've only heard a few of their songs, but they're playing a show in Nashville soon. And uh, I, I do uh, some writing for a local newspaper. Anyway, it come, came up and I, I wrote a, a few lines about them and, and, and knew that uh, knew a bit more about their story. But like they're they're totally doing it like an old school punk band where it's like, yeah, they're recording their own albums, making their own records, doing their own marketing, driving their own van. You know what I mean? And uh, and I think that's very admirable. And I think, you know, Nowadays, I mean, there's there's so many different ways to get a movie out or so many different ways you can get music out that it's like I can't really be bothered to like promote myself on Spotify or something because it's like, well, so so everybody can make money but me. Like, why would I bother? You know, I'd rather I would rather have 10 followers on my Bandcamp page, you know, where where it's like that's, you know, that everybody's a real fan of music, you know. No, I don't have that many views on this podcast. I check on Anchor <laughs> all the time, but I just you know what? I figured fuck it because overselling yourself, it's like, it's, it's more random than people think. I mean, even Rogan himself said that when he made the podcast, he just did it as a thing and it exploded out of pure randomness. Yeah. And he wasn't even making money from it. So, you know, I figured if it happens, it happens, but right. But uh, I, yeah. Would you say there's a, sim- I mean, no, I mean, I was going to bring up the film green room because when you talked about independent bands, it makes me think of that movie because there was just something so raw about those punk, those punk rockers and how they live in their van, just going from one bar to another gig to gig, eventually stopping in a white supremacist uh, rock, um, bar, which is scary and terrifying. Mm-hmm. But there was just something about it that wasn't overly glamorized. Have you seen The Green Room? No, I haven't. And when did it come out? I think it came out. Oh, God. Wait. That's hard. I think it came out in 2015, but I think it was sounds good. But I think it was it's much older than 2015 or 2016, because I know that the actor, one of the actors that played in that movie, Anton Yelchin, he mm-hmm. died in 20. No, he died around that time. My mistake. I thought he died in 2013, but I was conf- okay. I was just confusing the time of his death or the time of a film of his that came out in 2013, and he was a great actor. That's an American movie. Yeah, the green room. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Blue Ruin, the independent film. That, that that title sounds familiar to me. Is that the same director? Same director. It's a revenge movie about a guy going after the great film. title. Oh yeah, and it's got a great. It's got a very simple but very authentic story. It's just about a, a homeless guy getting revenge when he learns that the man who murdered his dad is out of prison, and then it just. It, it's just pure chaos from that moment because the family who, who of the guy he he gets revenge on is they're just fucking hillbilly psychos wow sounds good 
and they're not as stupid as the stereo as any stereotype of hillbillies would give you. Yeah, that sounds really good. It sounds like it could be a good Halloween movie, even. Well, <laughs> Green Room is more of a Halloween movie because I mean it's in a fuck in a bar. It's in a in a a white supremacist bar, which and it just looks like the place of nightmares. When, okay. When they got violent attack dogs, Blue Ruin is more of just like a thriller. Okay. Those both but, sound good though. Oh yeah, they're fantastic movies. Hey, can I ask you a question really quick about the uh, just back to that Deacon's book real quick? Is it is it like a, a retrospective of his photography through the years, or is it new photography, or what is it? I think it's both. I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know how recent the photography is, but it's definitely over the years that he's been taking pictures over the course of his life. So there's just like it's like imagine he's amazing taking an, an amalgamation of a hobby you had like a, a bit bits of an amalgamation of a hobby you had over the years while working on your main craft and compiling it into a book. So I guess that's how he described it because he described that in one of the short episodes of his podcast, team Deacons. And uh, yeah, he is amazing. I mean, him and his wife hosts the podcast. I don't know. I'll share a link with you after this interview because it is a podcast I tune into and they just actually came back for season two, but they're only doing it once a week rather than two episodes a week like they used to. But I'm sure that's because they have to work. They released the podcast around the time of the pandemic. So they probably mm-hmm. had a lot more leg room to interview filmmakers, uh, writers, directors, and just people who work in film overall. I mean, if you look, tune into the early episodes, they interviewed Josh Brolin and Jake Gyllenhaal. And those are very fascinating interviews. Yeah, right on. I like both of them. I really love, uh, what's that, uh, what's the uh, Gyllenhaal movie where, uh, Nightcrawler, that movie's fucking rad. I Man, it's not just rad, it's very horrifying and <laughs> perfect, re- it's a perfect representation of the reality that we live in, how it's all just a narrative. I mean, you could say in many ways, I guess you could compare it to The Matrix in many ways, because it speaks in depths about the kind of world we live in, because even though the character he plays Lou Bloom is a psychopath, you can't really say he's the antagonist of that movie. The antagonist, yeah, good point. The antagonist of the movie is the society that rewards him or the work he provides. Yeah. Cause, and that just makes me go back to the matrix. Cause I'm sure a lot of people love the matrix in the beginning when it came out and they thought it was a great sci-fi movie. And now I think it's more relevant today because I think the idea of the simulation has a broader definition. And that all relates to the fact that, when you think about the simulation, it's just another word for a narrative, a grand narrative. And I think in many ways, the craziness of the pandemic introduced a multitude of narratives that you're wondering people nowadays are just more mistrustful of mainstream institutions of all sorts, whether it's media, certain representatives, uh, or just overall any kind of rhetoric that we've heard a thousand times. I mean, I don't know if you're political or not, I don't know. What's where you would lean on? I'm neither right or left. I voted for Biden, but the only and the only regret I have is that I participated in the whole spectacle. <laughs> maybe, I, I admire I admire everything you just said. <laughs> because at the end of the day, even if a candidate you like gets in office, even if you really if they really believe their own their own material and they actually do want to implement change, I think it won't. There's just too much money involved for them to do it. I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump, but I doubt he had he had complete control. And we both know the current guy doesn't have a complete control either. None of them. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And and I I feel uh, I feel like you do. I feel like another thing, a huge factor. Of course, you're you're sort of probably already alluding to this, but I think another huge factor of it, like it of 
I, I think I'm older than you are. And I, I grew up in a time where, you know, I was in my mid twenties before the internet became an everyday thing. And we all had computers in our houses, you know, and, uh, and, um, and I don't think we understood, like, I, I mean, I think people talked about it, but I think it's, it's kind of gone and it's, I don't think people really realize necessarily that. The dangers that, of it? Huh? The dangers of it? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, well, that too. And, and the, the lack of privacy and all that stuff. I mean, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. But, but when it comes to, I think there was an idea that like, oh, this is going to like liberate information, you know, and on some levels it has, but it's like, it's like the, the old, the old guard, you know, is not really ready to let that be okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's still an effort by lots of different groups to try to control the story and make it the story they want, but then everybody can find any other story they want. Like nobody's, nobody's watching the news at six o'clock anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, some people probably are, but I'm not. <laughs> you know? So you know weird The people, when I, when I moved into my apartment here a few years ago, I was amazed that they offered me cable. I'm like, who the fuck watches cable? <laughs> and we have streaming services and YouTube has become a greater source of information. And I'm not saying you should go watch some, some nut like Alex Jones. Right. There are more independently oriented forms of communication and information that at least you can form an opinion, a much more legitimate opinion. I mean, some yeah. of the people I follow that I'm interested in are more to the left, but I still find that they're much more open-minded than more, someone that's more mainstream on that side, because at least they're willing to side with people that are on a different, totally different side who recognize the bullshit. I mean, when you look at our main, our main politicians nowadays, you can see the desperation. They're the old guard struggling to hold on just to, to control the narrative. And I think back to the matrix, it is just about a narrative that controls the masses and only certain individuals are self-aware enough to understand that it's bullshit and that you can't step out of it. Uh -huh. And I think that's a great thing of us, the most unique forms of storytelling. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting take on the Matrix, and I've never thought of comparing the Matrix to Nightcrawler. <laughs> but uh... some sense, it, there is some element to it. I mean, it's not. I mean, Nightcrawler is more of a a crime thriller in some ways, while the Matrix is just a is a science fiction philosophy film. Uh huh. Yeah, but I like, but I like the idea that there's there is a connection there, and I think you are right. I don't know if I've even really, you know, uh, really like fully like let it be that clear in my head that you know that really he's he's not the antagonist even though he's you know uh like you said even though he's a psychopath you know uh it's really the it's you know it, it's really interesting to me because he it's almost like a it's almost like a little bit of an american psycho movie too because you have this 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 you know maniac who is really trying to be like a successful normal person like like given this like extreme form of like the rules of like capitalism and corporatism and all this kind of stuff, you know? And I think it's, uh, I, I both of those movies are kind of great because it's hitting that tone of like a black comedy, like just on the button is like, it's always really, really great. So I think both those movies do that pretty well. Yeah. Especially American psycho. Cause one of the debates about it for a long time was whether the stuff that he was happening where he basically got away with murder multiple times, whether it was going on in his head, but the film alludes to the idea it's not happening in its head. It's just a product of the society he, he lives in where so much bullshit is tolerated and even normalized to an extent that either desensitizes us 
or just turns or just numbs our ability to think critically about what's going on around us. I mean, I mean, look yeah, at especially that. I mean, look a year and a half ago how Stephen Colbert was basically normalizing that whole uh, vaccine Yahtzee routine, almost like there isn't something controlling about that, about trying to promote some agenda. I mean, I, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what vaccine Yahtzee was. Oh, it was like this little skit where they're doing the tequila song, like da 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 da, da and they're saying vaccine to uh-huh. convince the people who didn't want to take it. And I took the vaccine, but I think it's weird that they're just frowning upon people who won't take it so harshly that it's becoming like a tool for some form of mainstream entertainment to weaponize. And oh yeah, did you um you mentioned Katie Helper earlier? Do you <laughs> watch her with Matt Taibbi? I watch her Useful Idiots of her and Aaron Mate. I mean, obviously it's Aaron Mate okay. now, but I love I love Matt Taibbi. I read his book Hate Inc. It's a fantastic yeah. book. A perfect and a horrifying book just showcasing what the media really is. I mean, I mean, yeah. the cover's brilliant. Yeah, and that's getting to what you were just talking about. This idea of like that's I got I saw an, I had an article today. I don't know if it was Taibi or if it was uh it might have been, do you know Michael Tracy? The name sounds familiar. He's another, you know, uh, sort of another, you know, uh, I mean, a journalist that I would call left of center, but who's also like willing to talk to people who aren't left of center. You know what I mean? And I think Max Blumenthal. Yeah. And I feel like that's the difference between. Yeah. It's, uh, Matt Taibbi on his Substack has a an article about the actor Tim Robbins and the filmmaker Tim Robbins. Right. But mm-hmm. it's all about how Tim Rob he does an interview with him. And it's all about Tim Robbins talking about the fact that, you know, we used to live, Tim Robbins, who's well known for being a, you know, complete massive, like lefty liberal. I mean, that's, he's made his name, him and Susan Sarandon used to be married and they were known for that and celebrated for it and hated for it. Depending well, he's on- been defending Julian Assange a lot. Yeah, exactly. And so he, but he has this conversation with Taibi and uh, it's all about how he's saying like, it's really dangerous and it's really fucked up and it seems to be exacerbated because of the pandemic isolation. But like we used to live in a world where, we you know, talk about shit. Yeah. Even somebody like me had to talk to somebody who voted for Trump and we had to find a way to that, let that be all right. You know what I mean? We work together. We can get this job done. We don't have to hate each other personally over this stuff, you know, or like your neighbor, you know, you're so your neighbor is a Republican. Okay, fine. But if you haven't seen him in a few days and he's an old guy, don't you think you should go knock on the door and make sure everything's okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like how how that 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 sense of common, you know, we're all we're all we're all in it together and we're all Americans, we're all Nashvilleans, we're all in the neighborhood, we all work together, whatever the peer groups happen to be, it doesn't like this national politics shouldn't have to get in the way of all. You know what I mean? And, oh, and, and if you're voted for if you voted for Trump, then you're a fascist, even though he isn't even a fascist by his nature. I mean, and I guess I'm, I'm only I'm only taking this from what Noam Chomsky said, that he's just too narcissistic. He basically stated Trump is too narcissistic to be a fascist because <laughs> I mean, you could argue that what this administ the current administration, a lot of the censorship they employ is fascistic, but they're not fascist by nature. If you look at real fascists, they're basically a. I don't know, this may be over the top. I don't know, because uh, I do like reenacting Kelsey Grammer's Sideshow Bob routine, but do you like, uh, you watch The Simpsons or did you used to when it was fun? I, I have watched The Simpsons a lot over the years. 
Do you remember in season six when uh, he was running for mayor of Springfield and he, when he tells them of his, Who his Bob is sideshow Bob, the guy with the okay. great hair that wants to murder. Yeah, sure. No, but yeah. He's what a villain. <laughs> he basically says your, your guilty conscience might, for, might force you to vote democratic, but secretly you long for a cold hearted Republican to raise taxes, brutalize criminals and rule you like a king <laughs> in a way where like, that's a fascist. Yeah. All the yeah, way. Yeah. The bully who loves power and gets an erection from it. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, Trump's a narcissist, and you could say he's a psychopath in that he has no empathy, but I don't think he's a, I mean, when I say he's a malicious type of psychopath, I don't know. He's too, I mean, the only thing I think he should have done with his life is become a comedian because he could have been great as a comedian given yeah. his personality. <laughs> no, you, you make a good point. It's almost like he's too. He's too self-absorbed to be a fascist. You know what I mean? He's, he, he doesn't, he can't care enough about his own movement. You know what I'm saying? And I, uh, uh, and I agree with you. And I also too, I think that people overlook, you know, the journals that we're talking about would agree with exactly what, what we're talking about here, which is that, you know, on the other side of the coin, when you see, you know, uh, it's not just the left, it's not just the Democrats, it's also the Republicans, but you see our whole, you know, the, the the greater uni party of the duopoly right they all are are very much happy to marry the power of government to the power of corporations you know what i mean into in in ruling over everybody and that that literally is like the mussolini definition of fascism you know what i mean so it's like it's like if you want to talk about fascism i mean we're we're every day we're kind of in the middle of a of a of a soft kind of fascism i mean that's really actually happening all the time so we don't we don't need some kind of crazy aberration to happen in the politics to get us to fascism we're very close to it right now you know uh, yeah Look no, at uh, Pelosi. Look, Pelosi looks ridiculous enough to be the modern day version of of Mussolini because of that pose he did, where he just looks like. I mean, he, that pose <laughs> he does. He just looks. He almost looks like a circus act. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, he's. He, yeah, it really does. It's really interesting to like to look back on that stuff and just be try to understand. I mean, obviously, it's one of the great questions of humanity. Is like you know how. How, how did how did places like Italy and Germany and people forget Japan, but it's like, how did those places get to those extremes during that time, you know, and I think it's too, I think one of the things that that bothers me the most about where we are right now is just that there's a, uh, I feel like a lot of these things get like, because of this cultural tension we're having, we things are so exaggerated that like when something really fucking dangerous comes down the pike, I, I feel like it's going to surprise people because, because so many people have been called Hitler at this point that we have no idea what that even means anymore. You know what I mean? Of course. I mean, it's very strange. I mean, I mean, Putin, I mean, I'm not, that is, just because you say Putin is not, I almost call him Putler. <laughs> like a name you'd probably give a dog or something, but, uh, Putin isn't Hitler, but that doesn't make you a sympathizer. I mean, when Roger Waters openly expresses his own views, it doesn't make him a pundit for them. Yeah, but 100%. Yeah. It, and people even forget that the Russians were kind of our allies back in World War II. They were. They were pretty, yeah, it's, it's really. Uh... I fucking learned this from watching the movie Escape from Sobibor. I mean, it's a TV film. I don't know if you've ever seen the one without no. young, young Alan Arkin. Wow, that sounds great. I love him. Well, it's basically a film about the, the concentration camp in Sobibor. 
and or maybe it was called Sobibor. I mean, my history. I mean, I'm not the, a major history buff, but I learned about how the Russians were the allies. And one of the few, you'll be surprised. I mean, I'm sure you like Rudger Hauer. He plays in the movie, young Rudger Hauer. Wow. wow, that sounds amazing. I love both of those guys. And it's a TV film, but you wouldn't think it's a TV film because nowadays even the TV film looks so low quality as opposed to something from like, I think late 60s, early 70s. You're just amazed how good the quality of TV movies were. I mean, I even, I don't know if you, there's another one called The Glass. I don't know. It's based off a Truman Capote book and it's called something Glass with uh, uh, Alan Alda when he was really young. Wow. Okay. That sounds good too. I think it might still be on Amazon Prime, but the point I'm making is when you have so many of these weaponized forms of discrimination or just labeling, people get so bogged down and with all the, the, and the way people are overworked nowadays to the point where they don't have time to focus or analyze these concepts, they can be easily just, it just creates an avenue in the market for greater forms of distraction. I mean, I, I don't, not bashing superhero films specifically, but they do for work as that form of a distraction as opposed to a film that is more intellectually engaging and critically thinking. And in many ways, I, I even use a mainstream film like The Dark Knight, not as a distraction, but as a perfect analysis of how society operates. I mean, in the end of the film, you could say that the actions Batman takes to hold society together are noble because he crucifies himself. He tells a lie to hold society together, but he makes it, he, he also, on the other end, operates like an authoritarian because he makes the decision for other people rather mm -hmm. than trusting them with the truth. Yeah, I think that's what, I mean, I think that's obviously the whole Dark Knight, you know, trilogy is uh, grappling with those bigger questions of like, you know, uh, you, you know, to be the protector, do you also have to become the tyrant or something like that? You know what I mean? And, uh, um, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I generally like those movies a lot. I was, um, I, I, I liked the, uh, someone, huh? Did you see the recent Batman? I did. The one with Pattinson. Brilliant film. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought it was, I, I only saw it once. I felt like it was kind of slow and long ultimately for me, but, and a lot of people criticized it for that, but you know, but one thing I did like about it though, is that it was like part of that, the slowness of it to me was like part of the, the mood and having it be like this Gothic European Batman. I thought that was really pretty interesting. <laughs> I like just that. that. Just the environment of it explore. I think it was tackling a, a lot of things that are going on today. Mm -hmm. uh, just all forms of extremism are taking hold of, of a society that no longer has faith in institutions that have been crumbling for yeah. so long. I mean, one of the most interesting scenes and my personal favorites is the one where Batman has his interrogation with the Riddler. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, we all thought the Riddler was, well, he is, a, he is intelligent. He is very methodical. And even, I mean, he's been able to get away with all the stuff he did up to that point. But then you realize he is way crazier than you imagined. He's, right, yeah. He's delusional crazy because you could tell in the look in his eyes that he believed that Batman was sending him a message to do that crazy shit that he did to, to basically challenge all the institutional forces that holds Gotham together. And that's when Batman realizes, fuck, I, I triggered this in some sense. Yeah. And I think, I think some of these, you know, I think, I mean, really for me, the best superhero movies are the ones, and well, here's part of the problem too, is I think that, you know, the superhero movies are trying to be something 
that a 10 year old will love, but also something that his 30 year old dad is going to love too. You know what I mean? And that's, that's part of what makes it difficult is that some of them just seem dumber than others. And it's like, yeah, but if I was 12, I would fucking love this, <laughs> you know? And then some of them are like really heavy, but I don't know that there's a 10 year old who's going to think the dark Knight is the best superhero movie for him. You know what I mean? But for me as an adult person, looking at these as like mythic stories, essentially, I, 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 I like the dark Knight. I like the new one. I like the new one enough that I want to see more of him being Batman for sure. Like I definitely felt like it was very, it was definitely that good. Like it's not ending with that ending, how Gotham is left in a basically a, a social Darwinistic environment. That's actually based off a comic I haven't read, but it's like a similar situation. I figured what's society going to look like once an entire city has been walled off and it's just basically going to be separated into different territories. Yeah. I, it'll be interesting. I, I hope, I hope it, they do like a direct sequel like that. You know what I mean? And like go from the end of that movie to like another one. And they could do that. They could just do a different story or something. I don't know if they even have plans to do a sequel. Do you, have you heard about that at all? They announced a trilogy, but that wasn't the director's intention to announce it. I'm sure he had something planned, but that's another oh. thing. I have a problem with the superhero film model. Because even if it's a, a superhero film that operates outside the traditional norms of what we've been used to, these studios just interfere in the point where they have to announce that there's possibly going to be a sequel. And they did the same with Joker. I find the title of the sequel they're going to do fascinating because it has like a French con it has like a French connotation to it. Which, what is it again? I haven't read the title. I just know that it had a French name, a French word attached to it. <laughs> and that makes me feel like at least they're going to stick to the artistic elements that made Joker so unique because yeah, Joker in many ways was an examination of modern society in many ways. I mean, from an eighties context, because we're living in a period that is similar to the late seventies, early eighties, where there was a lot of heightened paranoia, a lot of distrust of institutions, a lot of rapid inflation. And I've talked to other filmmakers I've interviewed that I think that, and we both agree that, the 70s were the highlight of films because you had films that questioned those narratives and they didn't even have to say it directly than what a lot of other films today try and do because it was, I mean, I would say that a lot of films nowadays are kind of a little less subtle, but you take a film like The Parallax View, you don't necessarily know the organization that Warren Beatty's character is going up against. You just know it has some government ties, but it basically is based so on good. the tone of that era. I mean, Kennedy, I mean, it was just like a decade I mean, less than a decade after Kennedy, King, X were all assassinated. Yeah. Questions of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, for sure. And it's just basically the tone of that environment. And I think that Joker captured some of that, the, the despair that would breed a culture like that. Yeah, and, well said. I mean, let's be honest. You remember that scene where he's on that David Letterman-like show with Robert De Niro, and he basically says this... I mean, he tells like a very horrible joke, but then the, this idiot guest tells him, you can't say that. Why can't he say that? Yet you you make fun of a guy who might be mentally ill. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, it's I, this is a hilarious conversation, man, because you're like reading my mind. As soon as we started talking about like superheroes, the next one I was going to get to was the, the Joker movie, because I think that's another one like the ones I was just talking about that's, you know, obviously concerned with bigger themes more adult themes you know within the disguise of a it are i don't know in the disguise of a, of a superhero movie um uh and uh uh what was the the other thing i was gonna say you you read my mind there oh and then also 
earlier, I was going to ask you, like, what is your favorite era of movies? And I agree, man. For me, it's like my, the best era of movies is the 70s in America. It's like it's un- the 60s, too. I mean, don't forget. Huh? Don't forget Steve McQueen's bullet. That came out in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's true yeah and it actually goes if you look at that new hollywood era we're talking kind of about the late 60s into the early 80s really it's a little it overlaps a little bit but but you but the 70s is unreal man it's it's incredible how good the movies are back then and and how uh just it's it's, it's so obvious that it was a time like we were talking about, like when establishments, in this case, movie studios broke down, these big oversized systems collapsed, and then these artists just emerged and and the option was, we either don't make movies or we let these guys do it. And it was like, okay, go for it. And it was like, and it's cheap and it's fast and do what you want, like whatever, bring it back. And, and just you had like a decade of this liberating of the artist and w- surprise, surprise, you get the best films ever made. How do you feel about a lot of independent artists doing a similar approach with streaming services by selling their films to major streaming services that are more independent? Because you also have to take into account that as good as some of the independent films are on Amazon Prime that are direct Amazon films, and there's it's still a fact that it's part of a monopoly. And what is that? Because, I mean, those filmmakers, well, then again, those film, the films produced by those filmmakers were produced by big studios. So maybe it's just history repeating itself, but mm-hmm. Amazon is a much bigger monopoly than say Paramount was back then. Uh-huh. No, I agree with you. I, I think uh, it's, I mean, you know, the streaming services versus the theaters, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I think it depends on the film. It depends on the filmmaker. It depends on how they financed it. It depends on, you know, all that. I mean, maybe they would love to be on a streaming platform, but they, for whatever reason, they're not getting, nobody's biting, but somebody over here is willing to actually distribute it as an independent movie. Okay, that's cool. I don't, you know, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, filmmakers are looking for opportunities for people to see their movies. You know what I mean? And uh, And I think some of us could be purists about, you know, film and and projecting movies and all that stuff but but at the end of the day i mean i know it's like for me generally speaking it's like if there's a way for me to get my thing out there it's like the first thing i want to do is get it out there and if i can afford to start to be picky about it then i will be you know what i mean and it's like i don't want to do this thing anymore because now i'm here and i want to do this stuff and because i want to get to that place you know but but to me i i, I feel like um the you know, the various digital platforms and stuff. I think, I mean, to me, it's like, it's it's a lot, again, back to the music thing. Most, I mean, people are doing whatever they're doing, but lots of people nowadays are really going back to like a 50s kind of model where you write, you'll, you'll release a song, release a song, release a song, release a song, release five or six singles, and then you release the album that has like four more songs on it and that's your new record but it's it's you sort of like stayed relevant and had stuff for people to hear in the meantime and then you release the album right so that's what you that's what they used to do in like the 50s and then by the 70s it turned into no here's my album you know my concept album or whatever so so i think we went back to the because of streaming it took us back to the the that kind of a vibe and I think that, you know, uh, you see a lot of people trying to do similar things with like web series and stuff like that, where it's like, hey, we can produce, you know, a 15 minute movie, uh, you know, every week, you know, and 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 just keep adding and adding and adding. And then that's a way to make an entire film 
without having to just bite the whole thing off at once or whatever. So there's all these different options, but. Well, Substack is a perfect example. I mean, they even introduced a podcasting platform. I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the journalist, Chris Hedges, but uh, he's he, amazing. I saw, I don't agree with everything he says, but I would definitely would have loved to have access to his podcast. But then I see it's not on any platforms, but his Substack. And I don't know why that is, but obviously it was just on his Substack or YouTube, which was amazing, a surprise, given that YouTube you think would be the first place to censor him. His, well, his, um, he had a show on Russia television, I want to say. And, uh, you know, RT. I don't say the R word. <laughs> okay, canceled. <laughs> he had a show on RT, and he was one of the people who got just completely wiped out and canceled because all, you know, all of that stuff had to, had to go because it was very dangerous, you know. Um, and so I, 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 that kind of, and I think that's how he ended up on Substack was after that happened. But I think he's amazing. Really, my favorite stuff that he does, the most fascinating stuff and some of the stuff that, because he wrote a whole book about it and kind of goes back to that Green Room movie you were talking about. But he's done a lot of. Uh, really? Uh, huh? Green Room? Yeah. You, yeah. You said the Green Room movie is about like a, like a white supremacist bar. Well, it's just about a bunch of it's like a it's a horror thriller about a bunch of punk rockers trying to survive some white suprem like a bunch of white supremacists in a bar. But that's because they witness a murder. Oh, OK. Well, I mean, <laughs> Maybe I don't know. You just you just made me think about it because the white supremacist thing. So Chris Hedges wrote a book and has done a lot of journalism about the 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 sort of fascist element of the Christian right. And so, that's, yeah. uh, so I haven't read that so, yeah, yeah. So it's that stuff's really fascinating. I read War is a Force that gives us meaning, and that was the basis for the Hurt Locker. And I was surprised that he didn't like the movie because I don't agree with his view that it's a military recruitment film. If it, if anything, it's not. Yeah, I don't. I didn't think it was either. I I think you know I don't know why he feels that way because I certainly didn't think it was. I mean, he didn't like the fact that they used the quote from his book, but I think what they were trying to cap. I think it's because a lot of guys did sign up to the military because of that film that somehow that makes it a military recruitment film, yet something more mainstream like Top Gun has a greater chance of recruiting people. hundred percent. I can't imagine. I can't imagine joining the army after watching the Hurt Locker. Yeah. And look, you could say that, I mean, Zero Dark Thirty, that is more CIA pop propaganda based. And I still enjoy it for its technical aspects. For, the, mm -hmm. for how well filmed it is. Right. And I don't condemn the filmmakers because you don't have a lot of legroom when dealing with those kind of subject matters. Yeah, with like you say too, it comes down to, you know, I mean, I've, I've watched Stop enough- fascism. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen enough, you know, uh, and read enough about like, you know, people making, you know, like Oliver Stone making Platoon or Francis Ford Coppola making Apocalypse Now that like it comes down to being able to cooperate with these with you know with the military of whatever country you're in or what however you're doing it if you want to have the helicopters and everything else to make this film and the uniform Platoon. but Platoon was in the 80s and that was a very conservative era and that film is like very and blatantly anti-Vietnam Oh my God, that, that movie is like, that. That's a, there's a good movie that'll make you never want to be a soldier. Like, frankly, that movie's so bleak, man. Um, that movie scared, because I saw that movie when I was like probably like 16 or 17 when it came out. 
And, uh, and it was, and so I was like the age of, you know, like a young soldier in Vietnam and it's, and, and I was old, I'm old enough that like, if you, if you were that age in the late eighties, that means that you, when you were a kid, you, you were, I can remember still being old enough when I was a little kid to still be seeing Vietnam on television, on the news. And so it's like, you're, you, we sort of grew up in this weird time where when that movie came out, it was like, if, if there was a war right now, you know, I would, they would be looking at me the same way that they looked at all those guys in the movie, you know what I mean? In terms of the draft or something like that. Yeah. That, I mean, just the draft idea sounds absurd that they have to be forced into it. <laughs> if you, yeah, it's cause it's like, it's, yeah, I totally agree. It's like, if you, if the population doesn't, doesn't, isn't lining up to do this thing, why are we doing it? You know what I mean? Dickheads who come up with that draft are guys who've never seen the carnage of war. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. I mean, if you read Hedges, I mean, I it's been a long time since I read War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, but Hedges basically talks about how that's incorporated in the culture so well. And that even works within a lot of the violence in a lot of really good movies as a form of distraction that it, it ties back to what I said about The Matrix. It can operate as a narrative of distraction from people focusing on issues that are actually really important. I mean, superhero films do work in that sense, like mainstream ones, and even the ones who are, that are critically acclaimed. I mean, and even the ones that, ta that tackle great philosophical ideas, but because they're large scale, people won't recognize the philosophical concepts in them before they see the special effects. I mean, I don't know how big a fan you are of the Avengers movies. I like them. I think they're really good movies. I think they tackle a lot of deep themes, but most people won't recognize them. Uh, yeah, no, I thought they were good too, and I, I enjoyed them. And my favorite uh, Marvel movie, though, is um, the Captain and the Winter Soldier, and that's my yes. favorite one. And I, the reason why I like that one so much is this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier: is like it's a superhero movie, obviously, but it's exactly. really like a like a spy thriller in costumes. You know what I mean? Seventies with a seventies, a hundred percent, man. It, it's like it's like. It's like the, what's that? There's a great Robert Redford uh, spy movie. Uh, 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 the Three Days I, I, I know which one, Three Days of the Condor. I haven't seen it. Don't. Yeah, I won't say anything, but there's like that or like there's the the Day of the Jackal is another, you know, movie from that era. Uh, uh, and so it's just, it just reminds me of those like gritty spy thriller movies. And it's, it's so good. Yeah. So it's, that's my favorite, but, but I did enjoy the Avenger movies and the Avenger movies have a little bit more of that like sci-fi element, cosmic sort of element going on, obviously. But uh, I, I've enjoyed a lot of the Marvel movies. Actually. I liked uh, my, my wife really likes 3d movies. And so uh, we went and saw uh, Dr. Strange in 3d and that was pretty great. And I actually haven't seen the second Dr. Strange movie yet. I was rather passive with the first one. I still haven't seen the second one yet. So I'm a I'm a little hesitant because lately I've heard those those Marvel products have just been they've just kind of staggered. I mean, those TV shows I heard are kind of lackluster. And I don't know if you are a fan of Daredevil, the Netflix series. You're reading my mind, dude. They fucking neutered him. You're sitting here. You're sitting here like saying are there these Marvel TV movies that I'm immediately like Daredevil. No, yeah, they put him I, in that She-Hulk show and I saw a clip of him and I'm like, He's your friendly neighborhood daredevil. Oh no, that sucks. This I like the guy who beat the shit, violated the, the rights of a drug addict where he basically froze him to the wall and his hand smashes against dirty glass and you see yeah. the glass lodged in his hands. That's not the guy who would 
who would do a sign like this to the cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, he, uh, the first season I thought was really, really great. And uh, the, and then what, the second season was the one with the Punisher in it. And mm-hmm. that moments, but, but that first season with just him and Vincent D'Onofrio was unbelievable. And the, the martial arts and the, the fight choreography third? season was insane. Huh? Third season? Did I see the third season? Yeah, the third and final one. What's the third and final one? Tell me what happens in that. Where basically they introduce, well, they reintroduce, they introduce, but also reinvented the character of Bullseye because the one you, I don't know if you saw the Ben Affleck Daredevil film, but he was that guy Colin Farrell played that a perfect target practice. They reinvent him in Daredevil the series as a former military sniper who suffers from borderline personality disorder. From I think he's borderline. But uh-huh. he has, he's basically a police officer that lives a very isolated life and you empathize oh. with him and, but he has sociopathic traits. And, yeah. 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 Oh, I you saw that season? Yeah. It's hard for me to decide whether I like that season more or the first one, but the first one I thought was great was they didn't over advertise the whole superhero idea because throughout the majority of that season, he's just wearing all black gear. Right. That was cool. I liked that a lot. And he, and he actually had a reason for the costume at the end. Yeah, I thought there was a lot about that first season that was like very like practical and grounded and really fit like the Hell's Kitchen like vibe and everything. And it wasn't, there was like, it, it, it there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, um, it was Smokeness to the martial arts series. It was more of like a crime series about gangsters and shit. And this guy just happened to be. Uh, you know, a uh, guy with a gift and and it wasn't so much like a, a, like the sillier aspects of superhero stories. You know what I mean? It was very, it was really good. And I liked all the characters and actors in the movie. Like I, I really thought they were all like really well done. So, uh, or in that series, I would love to see them come back to do something like that. I thought- um, Not gonna happen after what they've done with him in She-Hulk. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. <laughs> you see how smooth his martial arts you should see how smooth his martial arts fighting is in that show, as opposed <laughs> to the much more bare knuckle, sloppy martial yeah. arts where he's basically physically exhausted and he's fighting multiple. I mean, even something that's much better quality, like in season two, the the long track shot scene, oh, unbelievable. where he's less tired, you could see he's struggling to pick off these bikers, uh-huh. and it's still very gritty and brutal, and it's like he's fighting through. Uh, Dante's nine nine circles of hell because of the <laughs> palette they're using, but it's basically a show back then that wasn't afraid to be Breaking Bad or The Sopranos level. Yeah, it's about exactly. A guy, it's about a guy dressed like a devil. Yeah, it was. I, I, and I think that's an interesting thing too that that came about in television, but that I think a lot of movies have done recently. And obviously, it's not new, but I feel like this whole trend of like the anti-hero. Uh, and the you know the morally ambiguous you know protagonist I think is uh, is I, I mean I love that I think it's really fascinating and I I think I think Marvel especially just growing up reading comic books as a kid even just growing up reading comic books as a kid you knew that Marvel comics were different and you knew they were different because the Marvel comic characters had they struggled they had real human struggles with their super fantastic, weird, you know, uh, st- extraordinary stories. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's like, even though it's all this stuff is made up and isn't real, it, they acted like you and I might, if 
we were bitten by a radioactive spider and could suddenly do these things nobody else could do. You know what I mean? You would go through the hubris of the, having these powers. You would go through the regret of using them. You know what I mean? And all this kind of stuff. So I think that's what I really loved about Marvel. And I think the best bar Marvel films capitalize on that sort of emotional complexity, but obviously not all of them make it across the finish line. <laughs> Seems like it's kind of faltering. And that makes me want to ask you this next question. What do you feel about the morally gray character in that context? And do you think it's holding on decently or kind of faltering along with the, the whole Marvel series? I don't know. I haven't really seen much that they've done recently. Like um, I, I, I liked, let me think of like what I've seen that I, that I liked. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's come out since the Avengers ended, right? So this is like this, the second wave. What's it called? It's called the third no, 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 no. The, after the, the end game, that was three years ago. It's kind of just gone down, uh, like become less in quality. Yeah, maybe it has. I think, I think the, you know, one thing I saw recently, the most recent Marvel thing I saw was, and this is kind of to that point, uh, the, rec the most recent Marvel thing I saw was uh, the uh, Werewolf by Night special presentation, right? Uh, this is on Disney Channel. So this is like a TV thing. So uh, Werewolf by Night, so like at some point, I don't even know exactly when this happened, but at some point comic books were, were part of like a moral panic, right? Back in like the forties or something. And, uh, and so, uh, and so, uh, so they came up with a code and they, just for people who don't know this story, they came up with this code that like wouldn't let you do certain things and like censored your stories essentially. And so uh, when that code went away, then all of a sudden there is this wave of all these crazy comics that have just been waiting to get published basically because they had all these ideas that you couldn't do. And one of the things that was really limited was like horror and occult and all that kind of stuff. That was like, the code was like forbidding a lot of that stuff. So when that happened, all these kind of monster comics and stuff started to happen. And Marvel came up with this character uh, the werewolf by night character, right? And he did, a, I think he was in like a special guest of, of a few things and then got his own series. And it's just, a, it's a werewolf story, right? Um, and so in the Marvel special presentation, which is obviously being introduced for Halloween, they, um, uh, it's, it's um, that, I can't remember that actor's name, Gabriel. Uh, he's a, I want to say he's a Spanish actor. He could be, I don't think he's a Mexican actor. I think he's a Spanish actor. Um, uh, he is uh He's right. He is the star of the movie, and there's a bunch of other people that get together. Uh, they're all monster hunters, right? And the the their great leader has passed away. So they show up to uh, to go to his wake, basically, and they all receive this last message from him that uh, that there's going to be one. They're going to all go on a hunt together, and whoever wins the hunt will be given this special amulet, which is like this big time weapon to be that, that you can use against monsters, right? So this, it's this whole idea that there's this whole monster thing happening on the earth and you have these special group of monster hunters who keep it from getting out of control. But like people like you and I don't even know this is going on. You know what I mean? Because they're doing a good job. <laughs> so, uh, so that's basically the premise. The cool thing about it that you'll appreciate is that it looks amazing and it's shot in black and white like an old universal horror film. And it's set in that kind of a setting too, like where it's like an old castle and all this kind of stuff. It's super fucking cool in that way. Like technically speaking, it's pretty rad. 
the monster in it is pretty awesome pretty awesome the the werewolf creature is a little weird but uh, but i love werewolf movies so it's okay as long as they stick to the story i'm okay and as long as <laughs> yeah. they are committed to capturing a tone that doesn't cater to an audience that they feel might be more they feel they need to protect because what struck me as odd as aside from all those netflix marvel shows being taken off netflix and put on disney plus because I don't see any children watching the original Daredevil series. I don't right. see any kids watching The Punisher, which they put on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I haven't seen the, the Punisher show with mm-hmm. uh, John Bernthal. I heard it at a mixed reception, but I doubt it spared any violent elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen most of it. I think I maybe saw all of it. I really loved him as The Punisher a lot. And, um, and, but I would agree that like the idea that it should get like mixed reviews, I would say, yeah, that sounds about right. Like there's things that I love, really loved about it. There was things about it that seemed to be kind of aimless. Uh, it never seemed to be too like pandering to like a silly story or too, you know, like what some of the things you're talking about that they're trying to do with the Daredevil now. I mean, that just doesn't even make any sense. You know what I mean? So I haven't seen that. But well, it has I, nothing I, to do with them putting him in the yellow suit that he used to have. Would you say that they put him in the yellow suit that he used to wear in the comics? The yellow, oh, they did, and red suit. Uh huh. And that was from one of the the best Daredevil comics. But they've just kiddied him up and just toned him down significantly. That it's just that I just makes me wonder what Marvel's going to do now. What would even be the point of putting him in a show that's supposed to read like a comedy? Why put him in it at all? Because they liked his cameo, in, I guess, in the new Spider, in the recent Spider-Man film. Ah, you're right. You're right. That's why. That's but it. Even there, you got a hint that he lightened up a little. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when you look at the, when you compare the era today versus the '70s, I, de- I definitely think there's a there's an avenue for a repeat of that because, especially with a lot of independent filmmakers getting out of the studio system, I mean. You could take an example, like even though Christopher Nolan hasn't gone independent, the fact that he basically told Warner Brothers, fuck you, says that at the end of the day, he's just an overly, I mean, not overly paid, but just a much larger framework for a freelance filmmaker. Because, I mean, Paramount gave him everything he wanted for his new film. And the timing of his film couldn't have been more ironic. Which, tell me what you're talking about. You know how to, back in early 2021, they announced that all the film, all the major films would be put on streaming services ar- ar- along with theatrical releases, but they never, t- but they did this before telling the filmmakers and Christopher Nolan openly expressed his distaste for that. And he ended and he kind of like cut his ties with Warner Bros, went to Paramount. Yeah. They gave, him, they gave him the funding and the create complete creative control over his next project, which is the film Oppenheimer. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think the timing of that film is kind of ironic, given that right now the subject of nuclear annihilation is more more to openly discuss than ever. I mean, I don't know how you feel what's going to happen there. I mean, me? I mean, just don't give in to the paranoia. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me because, you know, this, you know, talking about the 80s and things like that, uh, you know, growing up in that era, it was it was very much a palpable thing that you worried about. And, and there was, I mean, there was lots of films during that time that were specifically about, you know, the Russians are going to bomb us. You know what I mean? So I feel like, I feel like it's 
it's something that a lot of us, I think, felt like, well, that was in the past. That's not really a danger anymore. But of course, it doesn't really go away unless the weapons go away. And now here we are again. To me, it's it's also like just some of the things that we've obviously been talking about. I can I know what side of this argument you're on. But to me, the the the, the real the only real issue in America, and this goes to that that Chris uh, uh, Hedges book too. It's like you're either for war or you're against war. And those are the only two things that really matter in American politics because all the rest of it is frosting, essentially. And at the end of the day, you know, the 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 I mean, the 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 Democrats have control of the White House and the Senate and the, the House right now. I mean, the Senate's a little iffy, but still they've got they're they're the ones steering this whole boat. And no, it's no, gonna change come November. No one, no one, no one has said a word about like we should drive to peace negotiations immediately. This whole situation is too perilous and too dangerous for this kind of instability. It's ridiculous that this is happening. We, the only option is peace talks now. You know what I mean? That's, what the, that's, the, that's the thing that should be going on right now. And if anybody says, well, Russia shouldn't have invaded and da-da-da, it's like, who, none of it matters. The only thing that matters is we need to put our guns down and talk. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. And, and we can figure it out at that point. But, but, but the idea, there was something that, uh, I'm, I'm, again, this might have been Matt Taibbi or, no, this was, this was uh, 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 Michael Stacy. Uh, he has a sub stack as well. He's on Twitter as well. But he was talking about- Michael some, Tracy or Stacy? Are they two different- I'm sorry, Tracy, Tracy. Yeah, Michael Tracy. Oh, but, you're talking about somebody else. He was just talking about a thing where uh, somebody- it was something about some group of progressives in the Congress, you know, had done something where they had like, uh, you know, sort of like made some kind of an anti-war gesture and then made a big deal about retracting that gesture when it fought probably and all this stuff. And, and he was basically just talking about how the whole thing was just a, a, a play act kind of pantomime performance type of thing that doesn't really matter because it's like, you're actually in the Congress, you can write a bill, you know what I mean? And, uh, uh, and but instead of doing that, you're just gonna sort of do these gestures that sort of allude. Shit. But even then they're retracting it. So it's like, there's, so there's just no protest on the right or the left about, about just steaming straight forward into a more realized conflict with Russia, which is insane and stupid. So, so to me, you know, that's that's the team I don't want to be on, and that means I that means I don't want to be on the team of 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 either of those teams. You know what I mean? Well, it's definitely worth talking about because it's so normalized this idea that it can't happen, that even the culture we're living in isn't too paranoid about nuclear annihilation. I mean, not as much as you would say the '80s. I mean, I don't know if you see it that way, but when I look at average everyday people outside it doesn't seem like they're going into the kind of panic you would have seen in the 80s and it's like they're just so normal but then again <clears throat> this is a culture that just spent 20 years at war with another country and that even that became normalized they're like oh it's just another war yeah you know it's it's really it's it's really uh we've we've really lost our way with our foreign policy 100 percent. so i mean i mean on a lot of levels not just in terms of conflict in terms of so much stuff i feel like i feel like we're you know the it's it, it's it's really painfully obvious that there's no mainstream politicians who you know 
literally are willing to just stand up to stand up for against war. You know what I mean? It seems like a, it seems like an easy one, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, but it's sort of, the closest I can think of is Tulsi Gabbard. What now? The closest I can think of is Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. That was always like her central message, right? Was like an anti-war message. And, and, you know, she was, she was demonized for it. The fact that being anti-war is demonizing, it, <laughs> it makes me understand the way even storytelling is being framed nowadays, where it's just something safe that can work as a distraction as opposed to something that can bring people a greater level of consciousness. Because when you, we've, in the times we've talked about the 70s and the early 80s, a lot of those films inadvertently did bring a lot of self-awareness to people about the bullshit that was going on. I mean, 100%. I doubt anybody could watch Taxi Driver nowadays and not think it's a perfect examination of a very fucked up society that can either label Travis Bickle a hero or a villain at the drop of a hat. Because let's face it, even though he does say, you know, he saves Jodie Foster's character and mentally scars her in the process, the murders he commits to those pimps and pedophiles, he was about to assassinate a politician just right. 10 minutes before that. And he could have been labeled a villain, but society deems him a hero. So it makes you wonder, is Travis Bickle really insane? Or is it the society that is willing to turn him into a villain or a hero? Just like that. Yeah, yeah. That's the, uh, this is the theme of our episode today is like, is like psycho or hero. But I, I, I saw, I saw, uh, I can still remember it. I can still remember being a little kid when I was still living in Detroit and I saw Taxi Driver for the first time on TV. It was probably, I was obviously a censored version of it, but, uh, but you know, it was, it was whole enough that I remember watching it and, and seeing the whole thing. And I knew it was like kind of a famous movie, you know, and, uh, and I watched it and I was like, oh, okay. And, and by the end of it, it was like, I, I understood that it was like this weird question of like, Every this guy's now the hero in the newspaper and, and, you know, Sybil Shepherd is sort of like, Hey, Travis, da, da, da. You know, she doesn't think he's a, as creepy as she did. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, he's even more creepy. <laughs> like he almost just killed the, the, the Senate candidate or whatever, you know? And then he went, you know, created this whole bloodbath out of some fucking crazy notion of like being a hero, saving this young girl, which he actually does, of course. So it's, it's, it is, it's a very ambiguous ending. And I think that's what makes it great. It's complex. It's ambiguous. It leaves you with all these questions to answer. And I think that's the problem with a lot of, a lot of, you know, like corporate art or whatever, is that that's, that's off the board. It's got to be a nice tight bow at the end. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's, that's unfortunate because like, that's, what's great about like, think about like a movie, like five easy pieces. What a weird, strange movie that is. And that thing, an ambiguous ending where he just like leaves. <laughs> it's awesome. I love that movie so much. And it's what a weird character. I mean, it's just, it's just a strange movie about a weird story of these. About a, care, a failed artist who has a lot of regret. And you see at the end when he's in the bathroom and he's just looking at himself in the mirror, he doesn't, he's not telling you what he's thinking, but you can read it on his face. Yeah. He's reached a point where he's like, fuck it. I can't yeah. do this anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing about it that, um, uh, that, one of the hallmarks of those films that is like one of the things that you can never see nowadays is you can't, you can't not tell people what's going on. You're not allowed to let the viewer be smart enough to understand it. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I, I, that's one of, that's probably the thing I hate most about movies nowadays 
is when I'm watching the movie, things are going along. I'm 100% keeping up with everything that's happening. And then some character has to pop on the screen to like awkwardly somehow talk to the lead character and at the same time explain the movie to me as we're going. You know what I mean? Just this terrible exposition and the dialogue and things like that. That an example. should be crazy. There's nothing that'll make me turn off a movie faster than feeling like someone's like spoon feeding it to me. You know, I, I hate it. I, I, I love it when I'm watching a movie and I'm half confused and wondering what's happening. I actually like that. I'm engaged. <laughs> Any examples? Huh? Any recent examples? Any recent examples? Um, well, yeah, I think actually, uh, I think, are you, a, are you a Game of Thrones fan at all? No, I haven't watched the show. The well, the the they have there's a new version. This is actually really kind of fascinating to me. There's a new spinoff of the Game of Thrones that sort of tells like the prehistory of one of the clans, right? And it, it's actually, according to something my wife read the other day, it's actually uh, attracted more viewers than the original show, which was obviously a massive fucking hit. Um, uh, and that show has been really compelling, really amazing effects, really great action, but also very good characters, very good acting, a, a cool take on the, the, the universe of the old show. Uh, but there's a, it, it's like just the first season, you cover this young queen from being a little kid into sort of like her like early adulthood and, and you know, becoming a mother and stuff like this. So it, it covers a long span of time. And while they're doing that, there's all sorts of episodes where you're, where there's things going on that don't make any sense. But I've kind of learned that it's like, it's okay. It's not going to be a confusing show. It's going to be a show that's going to, going to be uh, ambiguous for a while, but then it's all going to come together. And it does every time, like every time they do this stuff, it all, all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, that's that guy. You know what I mean? Or, oh damn, I didn't know that was this character, whatever, you know what I mean? So there's, it's, it's got a lot of complexity like that. And it, and it's not afraid to sort of be complex and let you get a little bit lost and then pull it all together for you. And it's like, okay, cool. I mean, the storytelling oh. suffers for that. It actually, it's, it's richer because of it. Oh, I was waiting for you to reach the butt part where it just, like, <laughs> it, it perform it becomes, the planned out version because i remember roger deacons talking about how a lot of films nowadays are planned to the t rather than given less room for ex exper uh, experimentation and that i think i believe him when he says that i mean 10 years ago i saw this movie called flight with denzel washington which was good for the most part but then the end after he confesses they have to go to a prison scene a prison scene of him explaining to a group how he learned his lesson i'm just like Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. No, was that the movie where he played the alcoholic pilot? Yeah. And I just thought they had to include that little bit. Yeah. I think I remember that scene putting me off too. I like that movie a lot. That's an, I've never heard anyone else talk about that movie, but I, I love Denzel and I started watching that movie and I thought it was fascinating. Uh, and it was, it's a cool movie and it's, I love a court movie. You know what I mean? I love a crime court movie. And, I like it. Even for an alcoholic, they don't explore his family much. They give you a brief glimpse of how it's already a destroyed, like a, a very destroyed element of his life, but so brief that it actually feels kind of refreshing as to the typical stuff you see in these alcoholic dramas. But then that ending. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, they have to put that like that moral thing on the end of it where it's like, you know, they can't let it be gray. They can't let it be kind of mushy and strange and let you walk away and wonder, like, what do you think about him? What do you think about what's going to happen to him? Because he just confesses in that hearing what he did. And he just says, I'm drunk right now. And then they all yeah. just gather around. Him. It could have ended right there. Right. That would have been great. Now, I mean, I already like it better. Like, I love it. Uh, there's so many. There's a lot of movies like that where it's like. Why didn't they just stop it? Like, why do you have to, why do you have to, it doesn't have to go, like, there's almost something about it feeling a little bit unfinished that makes it feel like it's still alive. You know what I mean? Where when you, when you bring it to this perfect last note resolving, then it's like, okay, now I know it's all just a phony story and I can get up and leave now. You know what I mean? Where if you leave it sort of unresolved a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, then it's like the thing just, is alive in some weird way <laughs> i'm glad to know that you share these similar opinions and uh, <laughs> i guess some final questions i wanted to ask because i before i ask on any other projects you're working on whatever happened to that podcast that you had worked on before because you mentioned that you had in, some involvement in a podcast with some with some colleagues what happened to it and that's um, it just it sort of ran its course. We, um, I've done a number of podcasts. Actually, the first podcast I got involved in was like in like 20, 2006 or something like that. Um, uh, so this was the third podcast I had been involved in. And again, it was called Art Fight Podcast. If you go to Twitter, we still have a Twitter account there. Uh, that's not, we don't really use it, but it's, it's still there and you can still find links. You can still find the episodes are all archived. We did, I want to say we did like a hundred and... 100 plus episodes. I don't remember how far past 100 we went, um, but we it just sort of ran its course. Like we had done it for a couple of years and uh, and had sort of accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. Uh, when the pandemic first happened, it sort of we sort of like stopped it for a second and then and then sort of revived it again and and sort of made it. Uh, an even better platform and, and did it with video and all this stuff. We sort of improved it during the, the pandemic um, and, and did it for a while during the pandemic because obviously the pandemic was a perfect time to be doing. A lot of people started podcasting then because it was the perfect time to do it. Um, so we didn't want to quit doing it then. But at a certain point, it felt like, I think at a certain point, the, the whole idea of, of doing the podcast during the pandemic, it felt, it, at a certain point, it felt like a, like, it was just reinforcing a feeling of isolation in a way. And, uh, and, I, and also too, my, my podcasting partner, a guy named Brian Siskin, who's also an artist and a musician here in Nashville, he, uh, his father was a, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, not a commercial pilot, but just a, an amateur pilot, a guy who learned, got a pilot's license, right? So it had always been a goal of Brian's to get a pilot's license. And, Obviously, being you know in a plane with another person, and then very quickly being in a plane by yourself was a very you know easy activity to be doing during a pandemic because you're in, literally in the sky, you know, away from everybody. So he finally got around to sort of doing what he needed to do to start doing that. And once that was about to take off, you know, uh, no pun intended, uh, that we we sort of wound it up and just said, you know what, this has been great. We had a wonderful time. We and I, I'm proud of the fact that like so many people are gonna. I'm gonna do a podcast, and then it's like seven episodes later, they just never do another one. You know, so it's like a lot of people don't really do 
the projects they claim they're going to do. And, and if we were going to do a podcast, I wanted to really do it. And we definitely really did it. Like we, we had, we, we got amazing guests on our show and, and we talked to a lot of great people and, and we discovered everything we thought we would and more. And, uh, and it was great. It was very successful and, and, uh, and really a fun time, but and, uh, it's successful in the sense that, that, you know, we, we got a, uh, a, a grateful audience, you know, not necessarily a big one or a, or a wealthy, you know, monetized situation, but, but it, as a, as a creative project, talking about creativity with creative people, it was, it was real joy. So um, I think the website might still even be up, but just look for art fight podcasts. Cause I, cause it's, it's still something you can access. And, and a lot of the episodes are really evergreen because it's not about, somebody doing something currently necessarily it's just about people's process you know and 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 how they do their creative work whether that's kicking people in the head or making movies or whatever it might be (laughs) well i'll definitely include the link to it in the description of this podcast that way people can learn more about it because if you ever do decide to relaunch it it would be a good i guess i could help advertise it in that sense that'd be great and uh, are there any other projects you are currently working on you'd like to briefly mention so people can know more about them? Uh, well, the most recent film thing I did was uh, my wife and I have have done a lot of these things together. So, uh, you know, I was mentioning earlier how my visual art has often become like something that's like connected with music. And um, uh, are you familiar with the, the Danish film movement, Dogma 95? It's a, yeah, Lars von Trier was involved with that. I'm not yeah, exactly. the entirety of it. I just know he had some involvement with it. Yeah, so they so basically it was Lars von Trier and another Danish filmmaker. Actually, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But and it was something they came up with in 1995. So that's where the name comes from. And you know, for your your you know listeners who don't know about this, it was basically uh, the uh, them coming up with a bunch of rules that they called the vows of chastity. That were it was basically really them coming up with a bunch of rules that for filmmaking that would make you make a movie that was sort of removed from a lot of what we consider to be like the mainstream Hollywood film, right? So there was all sorts of things about what kind of cameras you could use, uh, how you could use music. There was just all these things that made you focus on like story, character. Uh, you know, just the the real the real nitty gritty of 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 what this is about, and without getting too overly concerned about the technical things and all this kind of stuff. So so sort of as a joke, I, you know, to me, I always saw it as a bit of a a bit of a humorous sort of mischievous thing they were doing because to me, what they were really doing was guaranteeing that you couldn't make a commercial movie essentially <laughs> you know what i mean you were going to make something that would never be acceptable as a commercial film but they were established filmmakers so they could do that and get away with it right so um and it, and one of my favorite movies is there's a movie called the celebration that's sort of considered to be like the penultimate dogma 95 film but then there's then also uh uh harmony corinne made a movie called julian donkey boy that is the his version of a of a uh, of a Dogma ninety five film, and that's my favorite. That's I haven't seen every movie that claims to be Dogma ninety five, but but his is my favorite. So um, uh, it's my favorite Harmony Korine film for sure. But um, uh, but anyway, uh, 
I was thinking about music videos because, you know, once YouTube started happening and all this stuff, then you oh, know, yeah. started coming up with ways to think about, well, I could make a video, right? And I just thought about how much I hated a lot. Well, I didn't hate them, but so many music videos to me seem so stupid because ultimately they were just advertisements for the band. You know what I mean? And it's like, why make a bad, dumb ad when you could be making like a cool experimental short movie, like a, you know, a three minute movie, like that's plenty of time to make a cool short, you know? So I started thinking about rules, like what kind of rules could I have that could, you know, that would just make me make experimental things. So one of the first rules I came up with was I can't be in my video. <laughs> you know, one of the other rules I came up with is you can't perform uh, my music. You can't like you could have somebody playing a guitar in the video, but they can't be playing my song. They got to be pretending to play some other song like you, it can't be a performative, silly, dumb video showing me the artist. <laughs> the song at the grocery store like I, I can't have that right so once I, once I started thinking of some of these rules then I just started coming up with all these weird ways to make videos and when my wife and I started dating she started coming up with all these weird ways to make these videos that would kind of fit like what I wanted and she started doing all this cool stuff with um with found footage right so she's made a number of videos for my songs with found footage I've got a YouTube channel I can connect you to a lot of them are there Oh, um, yes, please. Yeah. And she um, she came up with I, I wrote a song called Lone Wolves Together. And when I came out with that song, she found that the the Rebel Without a Cause trailer, the James Dean film, the trailer was available in public domain. So she took my song and just basically laid the trailer on top of it and then put this weird effect on it where like half of the screen, the lower half of the screen it looks like somebody like took a paintbrush and just smeared the whole image. Right. So it's got this weird, crazy effect. And then my song is behind it. And then it's this crazy images from James Dean because the song is about these lone wolves together, which is what the James Dean rebel out of cause film is all about. Uh, and it was really cool, really cool video. And um, I got into digital art and NFTs and all this kind of stuff and started looking more at that stuff. And I really wanted to experiment with, with uh, making gifts. Right. So I uh, started editing stuff and I, I was like, I like the way these images turned out so much with this effect she used that I started looking at that trailer and just chopping up parts of it into like little loops that I could just mess with experimentally. And there was one in particular where there's a famous scene where James Dean is like arguing with his parents and he's like, he said, he does the famous line, you're tearing me apart. And he like points his mom and yells at her and points at his dad and then he's like and then it all gets mixed up together and da 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 and when you're looking at this without the sound right just the song underneath it uh it's just this cool like motion where he's like doing this thing and I kind of realized that I could turn that into almost like a little weird choreography if I ran it forward ran it backward and then looped it that he would just sort of do that endlessly he would just do this crazy dancing right so I cut that as a little gif and just was like, okay, cool. Now I've got this gif. That's that's neat. I'm just kind of fucking around with video editing. But yeah. then later I had this poem called The Death of James Dean. And I got some, uh, I got this uh, cool uh, pack of, uh, of uh, a drum loops by this guy who used to play drums for uh, James Brown. And all these different things came together 
And I just sort of recorded this spoken word thing with this James Dean poem and this James Brown loop, right? And then I and then I stuck that video on top of it all, and I just made this crazy little video uh, with this poem called "The Death of James Dean," right? And uh, and then earlier this year, I, I was getting all these uh, emails from Film Freeway, right? So Film Freeway is a way to you know. Uh, submit your movies to all these different film festivals or there's contests, there's all sorts of things. It's a resource for filmmakers. I know you probably know about it, but your, your, your listeners might not. But um, I started, I, I just sort of realized, I was like, man, I've got, this is a really cool little thing. If I just take a little time and spend a little bit of money, I could probably get this into some, or I might be able to, I might be able to actually get this into some little film festivals. So this year, I just kind of added a few as I went, and then we started getting into these film festivals. And so I think I think we have like maybe one or two left that I've submitted to this year that we have that we're waiting to hear back from. And a bunch of them, of course, have passed on it. You know, my independent short film slash music video. Um, but we've actually been in. We were in a, a film festival that's based up in uh, uh, Detroit, which is where I'm from originally. That's where I grew up as a kid. And we were in one that's based in London over in the UK. And then we did, there's one we do here in Nashville every year called the Defy Film Festival. Typically mm-hmm. an experimental film festival. And we were able to be a part of that. And then a month after that in September, we were in the Arizona Underground Film Festival, which is in Tucson. So that's been the super cool project this year. And that's on my YouTube channel as well. The Death of James Dean. <laughs> Under my when I do my music projects, it's under uh, my name is Mighty Joe Nolan. So if you if people are interested in that, they can find that as a single, but then they can also find that video, and that's the one that's been in the film festivals. So that's been like the 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 most one of the most fun things that that I was working on this year. Partly just because being able to go like when it was here at the Defy Film Festival. Like we were able to just like hang out there on the weekend and just see a bunch of cool films and talk to a bunch of great filmmakers. And I know a bunch of people in the film community here in Nashville, obviously. And uh, it was it was really fun. It was one of the things this year that made it feel it just felt like we were sort of getting a chance to have some community again after all this last couple of years. So it was was really special to do that. I can imagine. And uh, I would really love to have all the links to all this material. That way I can include it in the description okay. because it's incredible. It sounds very fascinating and very just invigorating by the, by the passion you put behind it. And <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I really wish we could talk more. And I really appreciate the time you gave me because this was probably one of my favorite interviews. And I'd love to have you on the podcast again. And since, and I guess this is a quick thing since you mentioned NFTs and crypto, if you ever want to talk about that in the next time we have an interview as a subject, like uh, the main topic. I'd like to know okay. your thoughts on Bitcoin and all those other subjects, because I think that's a subject that's not like a topic that's just being becoming part of the mainstream narrative nowadays that is worth discussing. But yeah, I, I'm really glad that I was able to get you to have this interview and uh, I appreciate all the, the work you've done with your own ar- artistic endeavors. And again, I'll share this, this podcast episode with you once I finish editing it and I definitely want to have you again because I really love this conversation. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. I really, like I said, I mean, like there's like so many times that we're sitting here talking and I felt like you were just reading my mind. So that's kind of interesting because I don't don't know that I've ever felt that way when somebody invited me to do an interview. So, so yeah, so I appreciate your insights too, man. It was great talking with you about movies. I love talking about movies, so I'm happy to do that. 
Oh and, yeah, share it with your friend Brian Siskin because I don't know this based on what you told me about him. He sounds like an interesting friend. Yeah, he is. He and he's even more. I mean, he's done a lot more uh, filmmaking stuff than I have. Even his his main uh, sort of gig is really as like um, I, I guess you call him like an independent cinematographer or something. So he's done stuff where he's done like you know video profiles for local businesses or he's he's done drone photography for filmmakers and stuff like that he's done a lot of stuff with drones you know so a lot of times he'll end up working on somebody else's film project and he'll do all the drones footage you know and stuff like that so i definitely like to speak with him that's for sure yeah cool yeah yeah i I could put you in touch with him oh yes thank you i would appreciate that but again joe thank you again for doing this I'll keep in contact with you and uh, I'll share. I should have this episode ready within a few days. Okay. That sounds great, man. It was great talking to you too. I'm glad we finally got it all fixed and got it together. And I apologize for being a little hard to pin down the last couple of weeks when we've had this stuff. Don't worry. Shit happens. I get it. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, and I'll send you some links in the email. Absolutely. You take care, Joe. All right. Okay. You too. Have a great night, brother. Bye. Take it easy.